Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Pastor Mark Batterson, our lead pastor at NCC. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. Well, greetings to all eight of our campuses. If you're a guest, welcome. If you were a guest last weekend for Easter, welcome back. Uh, hey, thrilled that you're a part of this journey that we're on called Long story short, we're looking at 13 inciting incidents from Genesis to Revelation. And this weekend, we finally get to the mission. Hey, here we go. Uh, one of my favorite movie scenes is from one of the Narnia movies, The Voyage of the Don Treader. Uh, there's a painting that comes to life. Uh, a very irksome boy named Eustace is badgering his cousins Lucy and Edmund uh, for their silly belief in a place called Narnia when water from the painting starts flooding the room. But why am I telling you when I could show you? <laughs> Lucy, have you seen this ship before? Yes. It's very Narnian looking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just another reminder that we're here and not there. There once were two orphans who wasted their time believing in Narnian nursery rhyme. Not so fascinating about that picture anyway. It's hideous. Edmund, it looks like the water's actually moving. What rubbish, see? That's what happens when you read all those fanciful novels and fairy tales of yours. Edmund, the painting! watch the rest of it, don't you? Uh, in the very first book, the children enter Narnia through a wardrobe, but in, in this version, they enter through this picture frame, and that frame is really a portal to a different reality, a world called Narnia and a lion called Aslan. Uh, the picture frame reframes their reality. And it reframes who they are uh, because Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy in England, they're just boys and girls, right? But in Narnia, once they enter through the picture frame, ah, now they're kings and queens of Narnia. I think the Bible is our picture frame and it redefines reality. Right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for them. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. We're aware of a different reality. It redefines possibility, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it reframes who we are. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Uh, let me cut to the chase. I think for a lot of people... The Bible is a nice painting that hangs on the wall. 
or sits on the bedside table. And we occasionally give it a glance, but it's nothing more than a pretty picture to look at. It's as static as the status quo. Why? Because all we do is read it, if we do that. We read it, but we don't do it. Can I suggest that the Bible only comes alive when we actively obey it? That's why James says, do not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of it. Are you a hearer or a doer? And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if all that you do is listen, then all that's happened is you've been further educated beyond the level of your obedience already. I love you. Just want to throw that in right here. Uh, I think this is the point in long story short where I remind us that these are not stories that happened thousands of years ago. These are also microcosms of what God wants to do in our lives right here, right now. We need an exodus. Uh, We need a comeback. We need a resurrection. We need God to do in our lives what we see in these stories. But we, we've got to enter the picture. We've got to get into the story ourselves. How do we do that? Uh, that's a simple question. And there's actually a, a pretty simple answer. By faith. As we follow Christ, we enter and we get into the game. We enter the picture. Now, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to uh, uh, take that picture frame and turn it to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter in Matthew's gospel. It's 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right before his ascension to the Father. And he gives them uh, their mission statement. And it's not just theirs, it's ours. So here we go. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are people who can take something simple and complicate it. You know people like this, don't you? And then there are people who can take something complicated simplify it. No one does this better than Jesus. He takes 613 commandments from the Old Testament and he turns them into something he calls the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Drop the mic, right? Uh, love God, love people, let's do that. And if we do, then everything else 
takes care of itself. If we're going to be great at anything, let's be great at the great commandment. Let's be great at loving God and loving people. I love what Billy Graham says. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. God's job to judge. And my job to love. You know anybody who's gotten those mixed up? You know what I found? When I try to do God's job for him, it does not work out well. In fact, it usually backfires. When I try to convict, when I try to judge, ah, but when I try to love, that changes the game. Now, along with the great commandment, there's something called the Great Commission, and it's what we just read. It's the last words of Christ before his ascension, and he basically tells his disciples to make disciples, which is essentially what he did uh, for his three-year ministry. And it's the simplicity of this that strikes me, because if, if I'm one of the disciples— and Jesus says this, I'm still in this position waiting for what's next. What else? When's the next class? No, this is it. Make disciples. And I love this because you can't confuse it. So simple, so powerful. Two words. Make disciples. And we'll define what that means in a moment. Can I tell you about one of the scariest things I've ever done? A number of years ago, I hiked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. About a four-day hike. Epic. Epic. Now afterwards, I had my son Parker with me. And he wanted to go paragliding over the sacred valley in Peru. Uh, now, I'm, I'm scared of heights to begin with. And we're driving up, and we get to 13,000 feet, and there's this cliff that overlooks the valley. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what am I thinking? <laughs> Is what I'm thinking. So we strap a, a parachute on our backs, and it's tandem, okay? And my guy is half my height, <laughs> barely, and he only speaks Spanish. Yo hablo un poco español. I know like 20 words, más o menos. That's two of them, Okay. So I'm like, how is this going to work? And so I'm, I'm waiting for the orientation. And so I finally, like, raised the question, like, what do we do? <laughs> and through a translator, he says to me, Run as fast as you can off the cliff. 
I'm thinking there's got to be something else. <laughs> there was, he said, when you, when you run off the cliff, lift up your legs real quick. <laughs> it scared the living daylights out of me, but I, I did it. I ran as fast as I could uh, off of that cliff and uh, proceeded to throw up seven times. True story. No, remember, he's behind me. He, he had the raw end of the deal. Don't know that word in Spanish. But you know what? As I, as I survey my life, if you said, hey, give, give me a couple of experiences that were just the thrill of a lifetime. Okay, that's one of them. That ranks real near the top. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm here. Am I here? I'm here. What I'm getting at is this, and I, I want to be careful right here. I didn't need any more information. He gave me all the information I needed to know. There's nothing else you needed to know. Just run as fast as you can off the cliff, <laughs> lift up your legs. I got you. By, by the way, we have a wonderful tandem partner, don't we, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got our back, and the paraclete too, right? Got our back, the Holy Spirit. I didn't need any more information. What I needed is a little courage and a little faith. G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. Here's my point. This is the scariest thing the disciples have ever done. They have had their security blanket with them the whole ride. Wait, now we've got to do this. You're leaving and we've got to do this by ourselves. Well, no, not by yourselves because I'm with you to the very end of the age. So make sure to kind of cover that base. But this is dangerous. Did you know that 11 of the 12 disciples are martyred for their faith? They literally die for their faith. The Father's business is risky business. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a dangerous plan. And so they're waiting for the orientation. And all they get is, go and make disciples. But I'm not sure that we need any more information. What we need is a little courage and a little faith. Jesus says it so simply. Make disciples. That's the whole enchilada. That's one more of my words. <laughs> Let me tell you what discipleship is not. It's not a curriculum. It's not a book either. It's a relationship. I'm not going to get all academic. I could give you the Greek word. And I could tell you a couple of nuances. Let me just try to put a little skin on it. For the past 20 years, I've been discipled by Dick Foth. 
we've never had a curriculum. I don't know that we've ever met where there really was a, an agenda from A to Z. But we've done life together. And the crazy thing is when, when he moved to Colorado, it's been kind of life at a distance. But we talked several times this week about different things. And to me, discipleship isn't something that you do as much as it just happens because life happens. And it's so very important that you've got a person of faith in your life to walk with. It doesn't hurt if it's someone who's been there and done that. And you know what? We've done that. We have, we have had lots of conversations about marriage, about our kids, about life in general. And then because he was a pastor and I'm a pastor, a lot of conversations about vocation and, and what that looks like. And then I'll just throw this in there. We've eaten Rocky Mountain oysters together. Don't look that up. <laughs> I sometimes jokingly say that I'm 17% Dick Foth. That's a totally made up percentage. <laughs> but it's my way to tip my cap to Dick Foth, who is just being Dick Foth. But I don't know too many people that are better at relationships and too many people that are more loving. I think discipleship is just being there for someone else. And when they need prayer, you pray. When they need to mourn, you mourn with them. When they rejoice, you rejoice with them. You do life together, but you do it in a way that, you know, because here's the deal. It's more caught than taught. And there's an osmosis that happens when you're in relationship with someone. Now the disciples, okay. They spent about three years with Jesus. They heard his parables and that, that would be pretty amazing. They sat under his preaching, right? Pretty awesome. And they witnessed all of these miracles. I mean, and they didn't just witness them. They ate the miraculous catch of it. They ate a miracle. Like you can die at that point and your life is complete. But I, I would argue that really if you read the Gospels, it's a three-year camping trip. It says that Jesus said, I don't even have a place to put my head. You know, foxes have dens, birds have nests. Like, would you follow me? But I have no idea where we're going to end up. Well, he knew. He knew it would end up on a cross. But what he invited them to do was follow me. Come on, let's just be together. Let's do some life together. They had some highs and they had some lows. Uh, they hiked some mountains. They did a little fishing together. And through it all, he loved them. I think discipleship is loving someone for who they are, where they are. It involves some tough love. There are going to be some moments if you're discipling someone, where it's going to call for grace and truth. Grace means I'm going to love you no matter what. Truth means 
I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. And when you're full of those two things, then you begin to have some life-changing relationships. And iron begins to sharpen iron. And in the process over time, I think we become more like Christ. Now I know that isn't as academic as some of you would probably like it to be. And uh, for those of you who that's the case, let let me give you two definitions because I want to give you some handles. Uh, I think that discipleship is just doing what you do. You don't have to go somewhere else. You don't have to do something else. It's doing what you do. With love and excellence. I'm just going to pull those two out. There are probably a dozen other things. It's doing it with love. It's loving what you do and doing what you love. It's, it's being in the workplace. And it's being a little more loving because of the fact that God loves you and it changes the way that you do. And so there's something different about the way you do what you do because you do it with love. And then I, I, I want to throw this out there. I think it's doing what you do with excellence. You know, Mar- Martin Luther said the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I don't think discipleship is about quitting your job and going to seminary. (laughs) I went so I can tell that joke, okay? You know, one of my favorite quotes, I I love this. Dorothy Sayers, who was the C.S. Lewis of her generation, she, she said... I dare say that no uh, ill-fitted drawers or crooked table legs came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. That's what I'm talking about. About doing what we do with excellence and with love. We have a saying around here. uh, His last command is our first concern. Uh, I have a friend, Dick Eastman, who uh, leads an amazing organization called Every Home for Christ. Uh, Since their inception in 1946, they have led 139 million people to faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And I think it's because of their mission statement. I, I love this. It's so simple, but it's so good. It's this. They say, we take the Great Commission literally. How many of us read it figuratively? They say, we take it literally. Let me press in right here and just ask the question. Have you taken the Great Commission literally? And then let me push a little further and say, have you taken it personally? Because if you've taken it literally and you've taken it personally... Let me ask you this question. Who are you discipling? Everybody should be discipling somebody. Now, those of you who've been here around uh, around NCC for any length of time know that we don't send people on guilt trips. That isn't what this is about. I have some good news for you. Some of you are actually discipling people and you don't even know it. 
but I dare say we could be a little bit more intentional at what we're doing. Where does it start? I think it starts with our families. We have an amazing youth ministry at National Community Church. Uh, we have an incredible youth pastor, Stephen Hubbard, and we have uh, uh, incredible youth leaders. But can I go on record as saying it's not their job to disciple my children? That's my job. Now, I'm grateful for the tag team because I'll take all the help I can get. And discipleship is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. But discipleship starts with me, with my family. I love our crosswalk kids. Man, they love on our kids. This series, our kids are getting long story short, amazing. I had flannel graphs when I was a kid. We've got like playing cards and poems and picture books. and I mean, it's unbelievable. And yes, they're discipling our kids, but that's our job. Uh, we've got to take the Great Commission literally and personally. And here's where it starts for me. It starts with loving people who are far from God. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a couple of stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And some of you know these stories. The good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one sheep who is lost. Can I remind us of why we exist as a church? We exist for the one person who isn't here yet. Listen, we want to serve you. I'm so glad you're here. But I know that we exist for the person who isn't here yet, but needs a relationship with Christ. And we've got to take some risk to help that person find their way back to God. And when that happens, uh, Jesus says that the angels in heaven rejoice. In other words, when one person is found, when one person repents, when one person comes into relationship with God, you know what happens? It starts a party in heaven. How awesome is this? We exist to start parties in heaven. Last week, 92 parties. Come on, 92 parties. And, and listen, if, if you were one of those people who made that decision last weekend, listen, we celebrate what God did in your heart. And I just want to say welcome to the family. Come on. Uh, we exist to start parties in heaven. That's who we are. That's what we're about. That's the end game. Now, in the military, uh, there are some uh, different types of missions or operations, right? We've got a lot of military. We love our military. In fact, can we give it up for our military at our eight campuses? Uh, listen, there are combat missions. There are humanitarian missions. You, you've got peacekeeping operations. There are intelligence operations. You know what I think we are? I think we're a search and rescue operation. I think that's what we are. I think that's what we're about. 
We're going to do our level best to love God, love people, preach the good news of the gospel, that there's a God who loves us, who forgives us, who wants relationship with us. Let me back up just a little bit. In verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm so glad this is in the Bible because I can identify with this. I wish I could say that I'm full of faith all the time. I'm not. I wrestle with doubt, just like you do, just like evidently the disciples did. Can I just say to those of you who are wrestling with your faith, first of all, you're not alone. And secondly, I've found that faith is built the way muscles are. To build it up, it often has to be broken down. Faith is always going through a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. Now we need to make sure we're building on the right foundation. But what I'm saying is, I think doubt is actually part of the process. See, here's the deal. We think that there are doubters and believers. That's the wrong delineation. There are doubters and liars. What? I mean, is there someone here that wants to tell me they've never had an ounce of doubt? Then I question your faith. It's a wrestling match. All of us have a bout with doubt. I think the most honest person in the Gospels may be the father of the little boy who was having seizures. And this father is desperate to help his son. And he, and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus, I love this, says, if you can, <laughs> this is so great. Everything is possible for him who believes. I love what the father says next. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's me. I believe. I have faith. Faith is being sure of what I hope for and certain of what I do not see. But I still need help overcoming doubt. Faith is not something you can prove. Okay, we believe things that you cannot prove. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't evidence for it. I believe there's overwhelming evidence. For I think it takes more faith not to believe. You can't prove it or disprove it. I think what I'm saying is, man, I hope this is a church for those who doubt. Where you can come and we're not going to pretend that we have all of the answers. That would make us omniscient. We're going to love you. And we're willing to wrestle with some of these things. And here's what else I found. Because my hat's off to you if you're here and you doubt. Because if you feed doubt over time, you lose faith. And there are a lot of people who do that. But if you feed faith, I've found that over time, you can actually lose doubt. And so, uh, 
I think we're in good company. Some doubted. And then it says uh, that Jesus says, all authority has been given me. Now, this is quite a sweeping statement. Uh, two comments right here. Remember the umbrella I held over my head uh, a few weeks ago? I called it the umbrella of God's authority. The reality is this, God's holding the umbrella. We have to get under it and stay under it. Let me flash back to one scene that I think is so mission critical. Uh, it sets the standard, sets the example. It's a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. In John 13, he's having dinner uh, with his disciples. And, and it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his authority. And then if you don't know what happens next, you're, you're probably guessing. If it's someone who knows that all things have been put under his authority, this person's about to take charge about to take control. Jesus is about to take the wheel. <laughs> Tried to say that with a straight face. Listen to me, hear me. When you understand your authority in Christ, it allows you to operate in a spirit of humility. You don't have to take the lead. You can serve. Why? Because it's not an ego trip anymore. There's one hero in this story. His name is Jesus. We exist to make his name famous. And listen, if, if, we could, if we could check our egos at the door, if we didn't care who got the credit, man, God could do some incredible things. So Jesus understands his authority. What does he do next? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was the job reserved for the lowest servant on the Jewish totem pole. The lowest job, the last job anyone wants. You know what I love about Jesus? He doesn't just say the greatest among you will be the servant of all. He's the one who washes feet. Listen, the towel is our M-O, the towel, is our O-S. Could, could we stop pretending to be the Messiah? I am not the Messiah. There is a Messiah. Trust him, I put my faith in him. I'm gonna try to live my life the way he did. And you know what he did? He didn't always just go around trying to prove he was right. Put a towel around his waist and wash some feet. You wash some people's feet. They, they might actually want to hear what you have to say. Just saying. It's not about one-upmanship. It's about one-downmanship. Well, let me close. Listen, I think the challenge is to uh, get in the story. Can, can we make sure that the, the gospel is not just a picture hanging on the wall, but we've actually entered into it by faith? I think it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ, accepting his invitation to follow him. And then you know what? Listen, it could be going on one of our missions trips. Listen, that is stepping through a picture frame. I promise you. It could be serving in one of our ministries. It could be Second Saturday Serve, our refugee ministry that, that you saw at all of our campuses earlier, our Dream Center. Those are incredible ways to get in on the game. You know... Peter Marshall said, I wonder what would happen 
if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels until we came to a place that told us to do something, then went out to do it, and only after we had done it began reading again. I'll tell you what would happen. His kingdom would come and his will would be done. That's what happens when hearers of the word become doers of it. When we get on mission, we have a saying around here, you can't go to church because you are the church. Let me change it just a little bit. You can't leave church because you are the church. Church goes with you wherever you go. So Jesus ascends to the Father. Make this quick. Says, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, everywhere you go, everything you do, you're on mission. Better yet, you're in commission. Jesus is with you, helping you. There's a God who is filling you and guiding you and empowering you and helping you and preparing you and setting you up. So the disciples go back to Jerusalem, retreat to an upper room. They pray for 10 days. Then God shows up and shows off. At Bethlehem, he's God with us. At the cross, he's God for us. And then on the day of Pentecost, he's God in us. I don't know how many times I've said this, but without the Holy Spirit, I'm below average. Without the Holy Spirit, this is mission impossible. This isn't going to happen. Your best effort won't do it. But with the Holy Spirit's help, all things are possible. His kingdom's going to come. His will is going to be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your mission that you give us the incredible privilege of being part of it. There is no greater opportunity, no greater privilege than following in your footsteps, than serving the risen Savior, than being a part of the mission that you've given to us. Lord, I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.